0: But stay. baby it's cold
1: outside. I've got to go but away. Baby, it's cold
0: outside. In 2014, professional cartoonist and part time jazz crooner Seth MacFarlane scored the biggest hit of his career. He took his cover of Baby It's Cold Outside with Sarah Borellis to number 10 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary Chart. The single shot his album Holiday for Swing to number fifty one, by far MacFarlane's highest charting album ever. He still records. His last album was released just last year. However, nothing he has released since has come close to replicating the success of Baby It's Cold Outside. It is likely he will never chart again. If that's the case, his lone hit might make history. There's a good chance he recorded one of the last hit versions of Baby It's Cold Outside. The Family Guy creator has never been shy about courting controversy, but even he might be taken aback by the uproar surrounding Baby It's Cold Outside. In recent years, the 1944 Christmas Standard has become a cultural flashpoint. Every winter, there are new think pieces relitigating if the song should be pulled from the holiday canon. The problem hinges on a few choice lyrics. In most versions of the call and response duet, a man tries to convince a woman to stay at night by stressing how dangerous the weather is. I really can't stay, she sings, to which he responds, but baby, it's cold outside. It's lines like, say what's in this drink, and I simply must go, the answer is no, that have caused some listeners to call the song inappropriate. Others view it as a playful back-and-forth banter. But for my money, the part that's a for worse is the idea that it would ever be cold outside again. Several artists have recorded a song to make its lyrics more palatable to modern audiences. Jimmy Fallon parodied the tune to be about kicking out a date. That's overstayed their welcome. Kelly Clarkson and John Legend released a self-described woke version with clunky lyrics like the ever-seductive pickup line, Your driver's here. His name is Murray. She and him gender swapped the lyrics with De Chanel taking the lead, but the original twist version came about roughly an hour after the original did. In 1949, MGM producers needed a big musical number for the upcoming movie Neptune's Daughter. Neptune's Daughter is an overwrought rom-com about a synchronized swimmer who tries to stop her sister from dating a masseuse who disguised himself as her former lover. Logically, the plot progresses with both male leads getting kidnapped, to throw the throw results of a South American polo match. The producers had initially planned on using I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China for their big romantic gesture, but censors worried that the song could be construed as I'd like to bang you on a slow boat to China. So instead, they reworked an old polo game that composer Frank Loesser used to sing with his wife. The last minute replacement worked out well for the film. It went on to win the Oscar for best original song. The first time Baby It's Cold Outside plays in the film is in the style we've come to expect, with Ricardo Montebom trying to woo famed swimmer and actress Esther Williams. Near the end of the movie, a different couple, Betty Garrett and Red Skeleton, reprise the song. Here, it's the man who wants to cut the date short, and the woman trying to seduce him. In this context, the song is a plea for a woman not wanting to get thrown out, rather than the pushy come-on detractors make it out to be. But all this discourse drowns out the fact that there is a legitimate reason to hate the song. It caused 9-11. In 1948, Egyptian author and religious theorist Saeed Kutub enrolled at a Colorado Teaching College. Instead of leaving the US with an appreciation for Western education, Kutub finished a two-year program with a raging hatred of America. He credits this turn to one song that played at the local church dance. As he looked out on a sea of dancers in disgust, Kutub's anger focused on the song that brought him together. Baby, it's cold outside. The song's popularity confirmed America's irredeemable debauchery. Kutub left the dance hall a changed man. The mild-mannered bookworm left America a militant religious fanatic. Over the next two decades, Qutb set out on a project determined to create a purified Islamic state. The only way to bring about this goal was through mass violence. Kutub was executed in 1966 for orchestrating the attempted assassination of Egyptian President Nasser. His teachings and writing so lived on. He became the primary inspiration for a generation of militant Islamists, including Osama bin Laden and the rest of Al-Qaeda. In this way, a Christmas anthem written by a Jewish composer played a small but crucial role in the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. Sadly, we all know what happened next. The tragedy of 9-11 profoundly shaped life in the 21st century. Music was unimmune. In the immediate aftermath, bands self-regulated to avoid recording anything that could be perceived as a comment on the topic. The Stroke's 2001 album, Is This It, probably the early arts album I still listen to the most, removed the track about an unrelated incident of police brutality because it had the line, New York City Cops, They Ain't Too Smart. Clear Channel, now known as iHeartRadio, was the largest owner of radio stations in the United States. They circulated an internal 165-song playlist that DJs were warned against playing from, no matter how tangentially connected the songs were to the tragedy. For instance, the use of the word ticket in the Beatles' Ticket to Ride was allegedly a strong enough link to air travel that the 1965 number 1 hit was taken out of rotation, even though the titular ticket, actually referred to Slip's German prostitutes, showed their clients to prove they were free from venereal disease. Eventually, artists were able to process their emotions in their work. Some had their careers revise, like Bruce Springsteen with his album link statement, The Rising. Some saw their careers implode, like the then-known Dixie Tricks, who took a stance against country music's conservative turn. And some saw their careers begin, like Gerard Way, who formed the death-obsessed emo group My Chemical Romance, while he watched New York City Burn. But perhaps 9-11's strangest musical legacy remains the song we played at the beginning of the show. If not for a corker fate, Seth MacFarlane would have been one more casualty to the tragedy. He had bought a ticket for American Airlines Flight 11, but the night before, he went to a party and drank more than he should have. The next morning, he was too hungover to notice his alarm. He rushed to make it to the airport, but he was too late. He missed the flight by just 10 minutes, enough time to save his life. McFarlane was not the only celebrity who narrowly avoided disaster that day. McFarlane's eventual TED co-star Mark Wahlberg was also booked on that American Airlines flight. He took a last-minute detour to Toronto instead. Patty Austin initially planned to board United 93 before switching to an earlier flight to visit her mom in the hospital. Austin's duet partner on the -the off-the-wall deep cut is the falling in love. Michael Jackson spent all of September 10th chatting to his mom and siblings, so he overslept for an 8 o'clock meeting scheduled the next morning at the World Trade Center. Tidy moments here and there made all the difference. Whereas Jackson, Austin, and the former Marky Mark had already released their biggest hits before 2001, McFarlane's musical career did not peak until more than a decade later. He found his greatest success with the same song that set in motion a chain of events that very nearly killed him, And the only reason he lived was because he did as the song suggests and stayed for just a half a drink more.
1: Hello and welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is that Stewie Griffin of Charleston, Nate Youngman. This week we're looking at the intersection of politics and pop culture. Our two stars will look at how art has reshaped the world. So, first, here's. Act One, Leading Man Few bands have had as good a year as Creedence Clearwater Revival had in 1969. Over a feverish five-month span, the group released three top ten albums, which each spun off several top ten singles, including their immortal anthem of class rage, Fortunate internet Son, Their killer set at Woodstock made them a part of the defining musical moment of their generation. Both Billboard and Rolling Stone magazine ranked them as the greatest act of the year. There's only one way to top off a blockbuster year like that, with a goofball record about aliens. The last single Credence released in 1969 was It Came Out of the Sky, a strange meandering novelty tune about a UFO that crash-landed in a farmer's backyard. Different institutions from the White House to the Vatican to Hollywood tried to claim the craft before the farmer sells it for a cool $17 million. I don't know who he sold it to, but... Who wouldn't of, want an alien? Yeah. yeah. Even when Credence was farting around, they still changed history. That frivolous record holds a distinction as the first mainstream single by a major rock group to protest Ronald Reagan. In the song, the then-California governor, that they mockingly called Ronnie the Populist, is depicted as an overzealous cold warrior eager to fight potential communist aliens. I didn't know the aliens were communists. What plan did they come from? Call Mars? <laughs> By the time Reagan became president 12 years later, CCR were not the only ones who thought the politician was a bit trigger-happy. At that point, his critics were worried that what was going to fall out of the sky was something much scarier than aliens. It was nuclear bombs. Dozens of classic 80s hits were inspired by artists' fear over Reagan's hawkish Cold War posturing. A partial list includes songs that hid their apocalyptic undertones under a bouncy new wave sheen, like Prince's 1999... Or Nina's 99 Red Balloons. Others were so oblique that listeners may have missed their point entirely, like Modern English's I Melt With You, where two lovers' skins literally melt from nuclear fallout. Timbuk3's Sardonic, Future is So Bright I Gotta Wear Shades, because otherwise the mushroom clouds would blind them. I'm alright, getting good grades. The so bright, I gotta wear shades. Other Reagan-era crimes were referenced in hits such as All She Wants to Do is Dance, Don Henley's tirade against media silence surrounding the Iran-Contra affair, Crazy people walking around, Or and the Gang's Celebration, the good times celebrated when that song hit number one, were the release of the Iranian hostages, which, as Republican hatchet man Ben Barnes confirmed in 2023, that Reagan purposely sabotaged the release to hurt Jimmy Carr's re-election chances. Good times, come it's a celebration. Reagan's cultural legacy is much more than just these musical pot shots at his policies. Because while it may be easy to forget now, Reagan was once an entertainer too. For most of his life, nobody took the B movie star's politics seriously. A casting director once rejected him for a role because he thought Reagan did not look presidential enough. On a nineteen sixty eight episode of that countercultural comedy program Rowan and Martin's Laugh In, Sakatumi. Yeah. A sketch called News of the Future used the idea of a President Ronald Reagan as a punchline.
0: Another claim in that same segment that the Berlin Wall would collapse in was seen as similarly unlikely.
1: Reagan's turn from an actor to politician was a long route, and it all begins with this. So just buy Wheaties, the best breakfast food in the land. Like so much of the world, it started as an accident. In 1921, a Minnesota clinician was mixing wheat and bran in a bowl when some of the contents spilled onto a hot stove. Curiosity got the better of him, and he took a bite of the mixture. The charred flakes turned out to be remarkably tasty. Five years later, General Mills started mass-producing it under a new name, Wheaties. Within a decade, it was the most popular cereal brand in America. Much of that success can be credited to the revolutionary marketing strategy that tied the morning snack to improved athleticism, not the fact that they were burnt pieces of cereal on a stove. The most well-known consequence of this campaign was the adoption of the slogan, The Breakfast of Champions, and promotional appearances by world-class athletes on the cover of their iconic orange boxes. But Wheaties' connection to sports stretched beyond the breakfast table. General Mills started sponsoring sports broadcasters across the country. One such station, WHO in Des Moines, Iowa, a young wannabe DJ named Ronald Reagan got his start in media. His acting breakthrough yet again turned on pure chance. In 1937, Wheaties ran a lottery contest where the public voted for the best announcer on their network. The winner earned a chance to attend the Chicago Cubs spring training camp in California. As luck would have it, Reagan won the contest. When he flew to Hollywood, he stopped into Warner Brothers Studios to film a screen test. With that one audition, he secured a seven-year contract with the company and began a new chapter in his life. While Reagan's filmography is overall fairly forgettable, his movies have profoundly shaped his life. Take, for instance, his political aspirations. A lifelong FDR supporter and eventual SAG union head, Reagan flirted with joining the Communist Party in 1938. His application was only rejected because the local chapter organizer thought he was too stupid to truly commit to the cause. Who knows how history would have changed if he had that party affiliation in his background. Another great hysterical what-if happened on the set of Bedtime for Bonzo. In the movie, Reagan tries to raise a chimpanzee as his own child to prove that, as he puts it in the film, even a monkey brought up in the right surroundings can learn the meaning of decency and honesty. I failed miserably here with Nate, but... Well, Reagan must have been a bad parent because the chimp nearly strangled him to death. While filming one scene, Reagan's simian co-star, Peggy, got distracted by the actor's tie. The monkey tugged on the neckwear and the startled Reagan instinctively tried to back away. But the more he resisted, the harder she pulled back. The tie tightened until he could no longer breathe. Reagan was seconds away from dying before a crew member managed to cut the tie off with a knife. Once a chimp released her grip, the knot was as small as a fingernail. No surprise, Reagan did not reprise his role in the cerebral sequel "Bonzo Goes to College," and not be the last time he narrowly avoided disaster. But at that point, he was a bit more than just an actor. I desire. You're listening to WHM Charleston. In 1982, oddball cult act Devo put out, Oh no, it's Devo. To say that the album lacked commercial ambitions is an understatement. The group purposely sabotaged any momentum they had going for them. In fairness, any amount of success would have been pretty remarkable. As great as Devo is, they were never intended to make it big. When core members Jerry Cassell and Mark Mothersborough formed the band, they had more pressing things on their minds. On may fourth, nineteen seventy, National Guardsmen fired into a crowd of Kent State students protesting Richard Nixon's illegal invasion of Cambodia. Four students died, nine more were injured. The Kent State massacre was a generational scar. While Krauser & Nash and Ashton Young's top twenty hit Ohio is the most celebrated artifact of that tragedy, the music made by the people personally affected by the shooting endured long after the story fell out of the headlines. One alumni present that day, Chrissy Hine, funneled her righteousness anger into her band, The Pretenders. Back on the
0: train. Oh, back on the
1: Cassell and Mothersboro grew similarly pessimistic after witnessing the indefensible slaughter. They sought comfort in the nonsensical notion of a de-evolution, a long-debunked creationist theory that humanity would lose its consciousness and someday revert back to our past lizard selves. Shortening the idea to its first four letters, the band, now named Devo, started making sarcastic, anarchic records that mocked everything from the government to rock and roll itself. By 1980, the band netted the closest thing they ever had to a hit. Now whip it! Though fans might balk at the label, Devo are definitely one-hit wonders. The number 14 hit, Whip It, remains their only entry into the top 40. Most listeners who heard the non sequitur field send up probably assumed it was a gimmick song by a bunch of dorks in funky pyramid hats. They might have missed that it was actually a pro-Jimmy Carter rallying cry, telling the president to pull his act together and beat Reagan in the upcoming election. Carter must have missed the message, though. He lost 44 states that year. Pretty good song though. After their follow-up, a herky-jerky cover of Lee Dorsey's Working in a Coal Mine, down. barely missed the top 40. They never came close to the charts again. Musbill has had a pretty good second run as a movie composer. He worked on blockbusters like the Wes Anderson movies, 21 Jump Street, Thor Ragnarok, and Tiger King. Remember that? Remember Tiger King? That was weird. (laughs) Oh No, It's Devo was not as warmly received as the predecessor albums. There are a few reasons for this. First, they marketed the album as music for fascist clowns. That is already a hard sell for most people. If that was not enough, the album also featured the track, I Desire. Its lyrics were co-written by an aspiring singer-songwriter named John Hinckley. Hinckley's had a hard time as a musician. Warner Brothers never paid him the royalties from his Devo collaboration. He could not get a label to release his first album until early this year. We're not going to play any of it, though. Sorry.
0: Feel free to check it out on your own time. I recommend We Have Got That Chemistry.
1: Pretty good song, though. It really did not matter if the songs were good or not. Most labels were leery about putting out music by a man who almost killed the president. Hinkley's motive for shooting the president had nothing to do with any policy or personal gripe with Ronald Reagan. His only connection to the administration was the curious coincidence that his brother and a son of Reagan's vice president were set to have dinner together the day of the attempted assassination. Totally unrelated. Both men were in the oil business. But weird timing, right? The real reason is stranger than any conspiracy theory. Hinckley had developed an obsessive fixation with the actress Jodie Foster. The best way to prove his love would be by killing the president. Neither the plot or the romantic gesture worked out for him. Bummer. Bummer. On March 30, 1981, Hinckley Jr. fired six rounds at Reagan and his entourage as they walked out of the Washington Hilton Hotel. The moment the shots rang out, Secret Service men leapt into action. Agent Jerry Parr pushed Reagan in the back seat of the presidential limousine and searched the president for injuries. Neither of them saw anything serious. Little did they know, a bullet had bounced off Reagan's rib cage and came to the rest precariously close to his heart. It was Parr who recognized the extent of the damage when Reagan started coughing up blood. Disobeying the protocols, Parr immediately diverted the limo to the nearest hospital. Doctors will later confirm that had the president arrived even five minutes later, he would have died. Interestingly, the only reason Parr was in the position to save Reagan's life but because of a childhood obsession with the movie Code of the Secret Service. As a kid, Parr watched the movie multiple times and swore that he would someday join the force himself. Parr was one of the only people who liked the movie. Code of the Secret Service was wildly panned upon release. Its main actor even called it the worst movie he ever made. I bet he changed his opinion on that later because the star of that film was Ronald Reagan. Through a remarkable coincidence across time, Reagan had accidentally saved his own life. The religious power truly believed that he had been sent on a course by the universe to eventually rescue the president. Reagan also believed it was destiny, but from a different being in the sky. A few days after the shooting, Reagan's wife Nancy received a phone call from the television talk show host and Jeopardy! creator Merv Griffin. Griffin informed the First Lady that days before the assassination attempt, he had received a premonition from astrologer Joan Quigley that the president was in danger. Nancy worried that if any of Quigley's future warnings were left unheard, something even worse might happen one day. She immediately hired Quigley for a $3,000 a month gig as official presidential astrologer. I believe she's the only presidential astrologer we ever had. One would hope. For eight years, the most important decision maker in Washington was the planet Venus. Everything from when Air Force One should take off to the finer details of the Cold War negotiations were coordinated based on Quigley's projections. Her kooky musings were worth it. She helped save the world. According to several sources, including the hilariously named former chief of staff, Donald Reagan, it was Quigley's Quigley's psychic readings that finally convinced Reagan to sit down with Mikhail Gorbachev. After reading the Russian leader's horoscope, she determined that he would be willing to negotiate. She and Nancy pressured the president to reopen talks with Russia. When Reagan finally agreed to sit down with Gorbachev, It was Quigley who decided when that historical moment would take place, based on the alignment of the world leader's signs. The concessions made at the Geneva summit sent an important presage for the end of the Cold War. At the meeting, Reagan broached the Russian leader about another cosmic fear. Somehow, Krenitz got it right. Reagan really was scared of aliens. The two superpowers signed a pact that if aliens ever did attack Earth, the countries would put aside their differences and unite for the sake of the planet. It only makes sense that the president had aliens on the mind, one of his movies had already given them their theme song. While neither Bedtime for Bonzo or The Code of the Secret Service are remembered for their artistic merit, 1942's King's Row holds up as somewhat pretty good. Reagan's performance as double amputee Drake McHugh is generally agreed to be the best of his career. The actor was so proud of the role that he titled his memoir, Where is the Rest of Me? after a line from the film. He came out to the movie's opening score at his inauguration. That song would sound familiar, even if you had never seen the movie. 35 years later, John Williams lifted large chunks of King Row theme for a score he was working on for a little movie called Star Wars. You've heard of this? You've seen this? I can't even begin to capture all the ways Star Wars has changed popular culture over the years. Nate still sleeps with a lightsaber every night. Hey, slander! (laughs) These movies have permeated every form of media there is. The franchise influence is so wide that it even pops up in some rather unexpected places. Like, for example, The White House. Star Wars inspired the notorious SDI program, a technologically impossible vision where satellites equipped with lasers shot nukes out of the sky. Leading scientists told the president that the initiative was not feasible, but Reagan still insisted on following through. America sank millions into the historic boondoggle to little result. The Soviet Union similarly invested millions into the arms race. The financial ruin brought on by funding the pointless venture played a key role in the Soviet Union's eventual collapse. Thus, the defining achievement of Reagan's presidency was inspired by a film that, steam was based on the defining achievement of Reagan's filmography, history is always the dumbest thing that can possibly happen. Star Wars had a near-immediate musical impact, too. Not all of it positive, though. When Mamas and Papas frontman John Phillips saw Harrison Ford's Han Solo walk on the screen for the first time, he said, Hey, that's my pot dealer. I didn't know he was an actor. While not totally original, the Star Wars score lingered around the pop culture for a while. It is such a great tune that two different artists in 1977 broke into the top ten. John Williams' recording with the London Symphony Orchestra peaked at number ten. A middle-aged session trombonist took it to number one. As a horn arranger for Tommy James and the Shondell's Crystal Blue Persuasion, Gloria Gaynor's Never Can Say Goodbye, Diana Ross's I'm Coming Out, and Kenny G's first album, Domenico Monardo knew a hit when he heard one. Still, Monardo's Lone Chart Topper is about as shameless a hit as there can be. Working under the stage name Miko, he came up with a genius idea to cash in on the era's two biggest fads. He simply slapped a disco backbeat and wacky sound effects on the top of Williams' score. You can't knock that hustle. The single sold 2 million copies, more than double the sales of the actual soundtrack. Mako returned to Star Wars well in 1980 with the disastrous Christmas in the Stars, a Star Wars Christmas album. Titles like What Can You Get a Wookiee for Christmas When He Already Owns a Comb gives you a pretty good idea of the album's quality. Chewbacca was not the only big hairy creature on the record. The track "R2D2 We Wish You a Merry Christmas" has the distinction as the first song to feature vocals by John Bon Jovi. Six years later, Bon Jovi's namesake band finally matched Miko's chart peak. Unlike Miko, they knew how to follow it up. The week Reagan left the White House, Bon Jovi was on their way to their fifth top 10 hit. The last way the Star Wars theme shaped music history is a bit closer to home. Eight years ago, in August 2015, A group of community organizers decided to start Charleston's first community-supported, commercial-free, local radio station. The first song they played to mark the occasion was the Star Wars theme. It was a fitting tribute. A song based on a movie starring a former Wheaties DJ gave other DJs a chance to be on the air, too. The whole story started a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Ah, Star Wars.
0: Nothing but Star Wars.
1: You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio, celebrating eight years on the air. All right, great story, Dad. You know, you never can tell
0: where your story's going to end up. So happy birthday, Ohm. And speaking of birthdays, here's my act Long Strange Trip. As long as years have Julys in them, you're going to be hearing Katy Perry's Firework. The Hammy Anthem has become Independence Day De-Facto Soundtrack, translating its brand of self-empowerment from self-love to love for one's country. It's not a total stretch. The 4th of July is name-checked directly in the lyrics. When America wants to celebrate itself, this is the song it reaches for. The man who inspired the song would appreciate the irony. Firework came out of a conversation Perry had with Russell Brand the grating British comedian that was briefly her husband. We finally get a whole holiday to celebrate not having to deal with pretentious British people, yet here's one crashing the party. During their courtship, Brand showed Perry a paragraph from Jack Kerouac's similar novel, On the Road. In a passage, Kerouac described his traveling companion, Neil Cassidy, as a fleeting explosive spirit. In a memorable passage, Kerouac compares Cassidy to a fabulous yellow Roman candle. Perry turned that line into her third number one hit.
1: Uh, side note, that same quote influences similarly pyromaniac number one. The Doors' signature hit, 1967's Light My Fire.
0: Cassidy's flame did not burn long after first topping the charts. He lived up to his self-destructive reputation. By 1968, years of acidified freakouts had finally caught up with him. He died at age 41. The exact cause remains unknown, but we can certainly pinpoint a major contributing factor. An indirect victim of CIA experimentation. Cassidy was just one more casualty of a particularly sinister chapter in American history. A life our government destroyed, now soundtrack's patriotic celebrations. A twist that dark could have only come from a writer. Long before Kerouac immortalized Cassidy's lost soul in On the Road, the author paid the bills as a construction worker. Ironically enough, one of the projects the future patron of bohemian individualism was assigned to work on was building the Pentagon. He was not the best worker. He polished off a pint of gin every day on the job. He may have dismissed the job at the time, but it proved just as important to his legacy as his writings, because a project conceived within those walls arguably did more to spread his lifestyle than any one novel ever could. In the early 1950s, the CIA had a crisis of faith. The agency could not understand why countries around the world were turning to communism. They theorized that those regimes, particularly China and the Soviet Union, had somehow mastered a way to literally brainwash the populations. The only logical explanation was that the countries had perfected some kind of potion that could control human minds. Psychology was such a young science at the time that Bonker's notions like that could not be rejected as science fiction hooey. That did not mean there was any reason to worry about an army of kami zombies. Not only had the Soviets and Chinese never discovered the secrets of mind control, they'd never even bothered looking for them. Minor inconveniences like that would not stop the CIA if such mental powers were remotely possible, it was better that the CIA harness him than those Don Ruskies. So, in 1953, CIA psychiatrist and in-house poison maker, Sidney Gottlieb, was appointed to head a new project called MKUltra, with the goal of proving if mind control was possible. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. Yet, over the next two decades, Gottlieb and his cronies destroyed thousands of lives in pursuit of this quixotic quest. I do not want this to come across glib. MKUltra and its umbrella of related programs represent one of the worst crimes this country has ever committed. Taxpayers financed a massive chain of systemic abuse that shattered people's lives and left others dead. There was no ethical line the agency was unwilling to cross. Compounded with the fact that all of this was in furtherance of an absurd goal makes the tragedy all the more senseless. It's no wonder the CIA tried to burn any evidence that had ever happened. If not for a few misplaced boxes and storage, their crimes would have faded from memory. Talked about only in the hushed tones of conspiracy. The main prong of their investigation was LSD's potential use as a weaponized truth serum. The agency brought the drug's entire global supply and immediately put the massive stockpile to use. Thousands of subjects in hospitals, prisons, and universities across North America underwent CIA-conducted brainwashing experiments that amounted to psychological torture. National security was too big of a priority to worry about bothersome rights like voluntary participation or informed consent. Unwitting victims were lured off the street and unknowingly slipped the drug. The practice of secretly dosing unsuspecting people was so prevalent that they had to hire stage magicians to get better at sleight of hand. No one was safe from being targeted. Candy Jones, who turned heads as a Miss America runner-up and the highest-paid pinup girl of the 1940s, recalled repressed memories of being a secret CIA assassin. She spent the rest of her life a shell of her former self, chasing down conspiratorial rabbit holes of aliens and cryptids. CIA operative Frank Olson suffered a psychiatric breakdown from being secretly slipped a drug. Ten days after expressing guilt over his involvement in the project, Olson fell to his death from the 13th floor of New York Statler Hotel. It is still a mystery if he jumped or was pushed out. But perhaps the weirdest pool of victims were the unsuspecting loners who got sucked up into Operation Midnight Climax. <laughs>
1: be seeing you in all the old familiar places.
0: George Hunter White is a heartless man. He made his name in 1937 as a narcotics agent by framing legendary jazz and blues singer Billie Holiday on bogus drug charges. The resulting arrest forever derailed her career. If ruining the life of one of the best artists to ever live is not evil enough for you, he upped the ante pretty quickly. He used his CIA clearance to help high-ranking Nazis escape prosecution in exchange for tips on how to better torture people. Their advice went in a surprising direction. In Operation Midnight Climax, government-backed sex workers in New York and San Francisco brothels brought random clients back to the CIA-sponsored safe houses to have sex under the influence of LSD. The Johns were then interrogated to see if the double endorphin cocktail could get them to reveal their private most secrets. Observers hidden behind a one way mirror recorded their results. Meanwhile, White was preoccupied throwing back endless martinis on his own portable toilet. I'm not gonna explain what that is, but the man liked to walk about a toilet. <laughs> Neither activity netted valuable insight. The CIA ultimately concluded that LC was just too unpredictable to have any tactical advantage. So Gottlieb pivoted to researching other war tactics. The ideas coming out of his LSC soaked mind weren't the most practical. Case in point, the so called acoustic kitty a living cat equipped with a tiny microphone implanted into its ear and a transmitter connected to its skull. Amazingly, the device worked. The cat suffered no health problems from the extra wiring and its recordings came out clear enough to use. The only problem was that uh, these furry secret agents uh, were impossible to train.
1: Yeah, I guess it was quite like just herding cats, huh?
0: Good point. You've you picked out the problem in this plan. The feline spies constantly wandered away from their targets. After investing years and millions of dollars into this project their cyborg super soldier was finally deployed for its first field mission. It immediately got run over by a taxi.
1: I I can't imagine the conversation in the van after that happened.
0: Well um, Gottlieb was not in charge of coming with ideas after that. (laughs) Officially, MKUltra and its offshoots ended in 1973. Congressional investigations forced the agency to disclose the worst elements of the plot. This is the closest thing there is to justice in this story. Not one researcher was sent to prison, nor were any of the victims ever compensated. After the initial public outrage, the story slipped back into the shadows, yet as the experiment's consequences spiraled out of the CIA's control, the results were impossible to ignore. Many victims, tricked into participating in the experiments, developed deep-seated hatred for authority afterwards. In 1959, Harvard's MK Ultra contact man, Henry Murray, conducted a series of psychological tests where undergraduates were tasked with writing an essay revealing their closest held personal beliefs. Professional debaters were then invited in to verbally abuse the students and tear their values apart. One person enrolled in the survey, 17-year-old Ted Kaczynski, left the experience deeply demoralized. He pinpointed the study as the moment he grew increasingly disaffected with society. Within a decade, he started a deadly mail-bombing campaign that ultimately killed three people and injured 23 more. MK Ultra is even directly referenced in his crimes. The first two letters of his infamous moniker, Bomber, were shorthand for his preferred targets. UN stood for Universities, the same institution that triggered his violent streak to begin with. Boston's premier mobster Whitey Bulger has a similar supervillain origin story. In 1956, the low-rent criminal was arrested for robbing a truck. Over the course of his sentence, agents administered daily doses of LSD. He left prison a changed, much more violent man. In the ensuing years, he created an empire of weapons trafficking, drug dealing, and murder. His decades-long reign of terror inspired Jack Nicholson's character in 2006's The Departed.
1: The Departed, now that's a good flick.
0: You're right, I agree, but you know, it does have its downside. Uh, Martin Scorsese's Best Picture winner is the reason the Dropkick Murphys became popular. So that's one more crime we can pin on Bulger. The stories above are notable, not only for the infamous figures involved, but because their reactions were so extreme. Not all subjects involved in MKUltra reacted so negatively. Volunteers who received the drugs in a more clinical environment often found the experience even pleasurable. Some started taking LSD recreationally. One such volunteer. College student Ken Kesey loved tripping so much that he kept returning to participate in trials again and again, like there were free samples at Costco. When those doses weren't enough, he got a job working as a hospital night attendant just so he could steal more acid. The new perspectives he got on acid combined with working at the hospital inspired his groundbreaking 1962 novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Us.
1: That, that movie is so great, too. It's kind of weird how two Best Picture winners starring Jack Nicholson were created by the government,
0: well, no matter how good Kesey was as a writer, his true cultural legacy came just two years later, again with a boost from MK Ultra. In 1964, Kesey and a group of 14 other free-spirit musicians and poets, including the aforementioned Neil Cassidy, hit the road. The group, collectively known as the Merry Pranksters, planned to distribute their supply of CIA-sponsored LLC across America. Novelist Tom Wolfe chronicled the trip in his revolutionary travelogue, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. The book endowed the ride with a sense of generational purpose. Hippiedom, as we know it, the type of grungy, beaded, flower power aesthetic that they sell at Spirit Halloween, all came out of Kesey's Merry pranks. It's a tremendous irony that the drug the CIA hoped would be its key to controlling humanity actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion against everything that the CIA represented. The CIA unintentionally catalyzed a cultural revolution, including its longest-lasting musical export. In the runoff from Operation Midnight Climax, San Francisco was flush with LSD. The man who profited the most from this illicit trade was professional ballet dancer and electrical engineer, Osley Stanley. By the time the government banned the drug in 1965, Stanley's private million-dose stash almost single-handedly supplied San Francisco's acid trade. Stanley soon fell into Kesey's inner circle, providing the merry pranksters with the potent chemicals needed for their parties. He took particular interest in Kisu's house band, The Warlocks. The Warlocks scored the debauch affairs with a rambling jam sessions, resembling the drug's hallucinatory effects. Musical formlessness was still the band's hallmark, even after they changed their name to The Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead were also a product of MK MKUltra. Lyricist Robert Hunter volunteered for the same treatments where Kesey was first exposed to the drug. Hunter's trip set him down a similar route of self-experimentation. Oswald Stanley's illegitimate business financed the band's first tour. Stanley also designed the innovative speaker system that gave the group their unrivaled live shows. Along with Robert Thomas, Stanley came up with the band's trademark Skull logo. But, in a bad move, he sold the design to the band for 250 bucks meaning he never saw a cent of royalties off the millions of stickers, t-shirts, and other merchandise the band has sold to its armies of deadheads. A fan army so loyal, they might as well be brainwashed. Die Hard fandom is great, but it does not always translate to sales. Like we mentioned with Devo, The Grateful Dead's cult status is not reflected on the charts. No song the band released for the first two decades of its existence got past number 64, let alone crack the top 40. Fugitive LSD runner, Ozzy Stanley, charted better than them in that time, and he's not even a musician. His criminal exploits inspired the titular drug dealer in Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne. The sinful yacht rocker's lowly number 83 chart peak was still higher than most of the singles the Grateful Dead were putting out in the 60s and 70s. By the 80s, they only made the charts' upper reaches of the punchline. In his 1984 top five hit, Boys of Summer, Don Henley used the image of a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac as a metaphor for the death of counterculture, how the dream of hippiedom faded into the corrosive greed of Reagan's America. When even former eagles are calling you lame, you know your time's up. Yet three years after the cultural moment had passed, the band scored the biggest hit of their career. They came back from the dead. In 1987, they scored their one and only hit, the peppy meditation on mortality, Touch of Grey. Not only did the song finally break them into the top 40, it sent them all the way to number nine. At the time, this set a record for the longest time between an artist's first appearance on the Hot 100 and when they finally broke into the top 10. The Grateful Dead's symbolic return marked a well-earned victory for a group long overdue a moment in the spotlight. The group may have begun under the worst circumstances, but they went out on a high note. As the song astutely points out, every silver lining had the Grey. We are still living in MKUltra's aftershocks. The program's long-term legacy was not just the illegal violations of civil rights and the damage done to its subjects, but also the further erosion of public faith in the government. As the granddaddy of conspiracy culture, MKUltra gave our increasingly paranoid age an extra boost of credibility. Considering the government's actual track record, it's hard to outright dismiss even the kookiest delusions. MKUltra proved the template for clandestine plots in our world, and in fictional ones too. Blockbuster properties from the Jason Bourne franchise to X-Men's Wolverine have painted their protagonists as unwilling victims of maniacal experimentation in a subtle nod to the real-world conspiracy. One story inspired by MKUltra is so popular that just last year, they pulled off one of the weirdest chart runs in Billboard history. A major subplot on the fourth season of Netflix's Stranger Things concerned the character's max connection to Kate Bush's 1985 art part masterpiece running up that hill. When it was initially released, the song stalled at number 30, a tepid showing barely high enough to give Bush her first and last top 40 hit ever. After the show exposed a new generation of fans to the song, streams propelled the nearly 37-year-old tune all the way to number 3, more than doubling the record The Grateful Dead set in 1987. Bush's comeback is so singularly weird that nothing like it might ever be repeated, but who knows, acid tends to cause flashbacks
1: good story nate a little more serious than our normal but pretty ironic that it was the cia that actually created the hippies
0: yeah it's always fascinating how history uh, turns like that what do you have to close us out today dad
1: well i, I wanted to close us out on a lighter story our two main acts were about how the government indirectly inspired famous musical moments. Now, let's turn the tables and talk about a time when a band did a better job than the government. As we discussed earlier, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. In the wake of the collapse, former satellite nations had to reassert their own national identity. One outlet that could renew their sense of patriotism was the Olympics. The 1992 Olympics provided this setting for one of the all-time great underdog stories in sports history. A feat full of improbabilities, not the least of which being the musicians which made it all possible. Before 1992, Lithuania did not even have an Olympic basketball team. All of their star athletes represented the Soviet Union at the Games. When the small Baltic nation finally had the opportunity to play under their own flag and not the hammer and sickle, they almost had to sit it out. The fledgling democracy did not have the money to send a basketball team to play in Barcelona. So the players pledged to raise the funds themselves. One person who took up the cause to ship the players to Spain was Golden State's assistant basketball coach, Donnie Nelson. He tried to get his California friends to back the talented but financially strapped squad. One group he found promised to cover all the team's expenses. And who was it who came in to save the day? Our old friends, the Grateful Dead. The Dead cut the team a check and even donated some warm-up uniforms. Their logo is honestly pretty sick. It's a bright yellow, green, and red tie-dye to match the colors of the Lithuanian flag, with a slam-dunking skeleton under crackling concrete blocks spelling out the word Lithuania. Win or lose, they were at least going to show up to Spain in style. The big story that year was America's famed dream team. For the first time ever, the USA sent active NBA players to compete. Lithuania did not have a real chance against American all-stars like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird. The real test would be winning either a silver or bronze medal. Croatia secured silver, so Lithuania's luck all came down to the semi finals. And in a made for Hollywood ending, their final opponent was the United Team, the de facto Soviet Union representatives. This one game would decide who would get the glory and who would leave home empty handed. The hopes of the nation rested on the Lithuanian team's shoulders. The United Team was favored to win, of course. They had won the gold four years before and had already beaten the Lithuanians earlier in the tournament. The game was a constant back and forth, with neither team taking much of a lead. At one point, the game was delayed when a Lithuanian player took an elbow to the eye. The Lithuanian president, who was in the stands, tried to comfort the player by saying, don't worry, you're spilling blood for Lithuania. In the closing minutes, two baskets were all that separated the team. Amazingly, Lithuania pulled it off. Clenching victory, 82 to the Soviet Union, 78. Ecstatic Lithuanians celebrated in the streets while the players sang out the national anthem in the locker room. Though players traditionally wear their warm-ups for the medal ceremony, the Lithuanians took to the stadium in their tie-dyed shirts and shorts, a sign of thanks to the Grateful Dead for supporting them when nobody else would. There was a reason to be grateful. All right, that's our show. To close us out, here's a song from another time, a 1992 Olympian, teamed up with a decades-old pop culture institution. Thanks for listening. So long, everyone.